Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Alex Ross Perry. Thank you. Sorry for anyone who thought this was the holiday party that's happening in the lobby. <laughs> but this, it is wasn't. this is probably more fun. Maybe. I think so. Let's look at those phases and see if it was more fun. <laughs> uh, maybe. Um, well, so just the concept of creating a film where there's a... You're sort of dealing with sexual tension from the very beginning. I mean, that seems to be sort of what one of the things that the film's about, but, but you obviously have a brother and sister, so um, you don't think it's going to go where it goes. Could you talk about sort of coming up with this idea? Um, well, the idea of the movie was always the way that it is. It was yeah. never an issue of let's add a you know, transgressive ending in order to create something that's edgier that will just make people's jaw drop the end the, sure yeah the, the, the yeah. movie is always the the first idea was the end of the movie yeah no it almost it felt like that i mean then that scene is almost that it's almost like 10 minutes long um in one shot essentially right. the key scene at the end yeah and it's just because that was always the idea it was easy to make the movie you know we it wasn't like well here's a crazy idea now that we've started writing this yeah it was like how do we make a movie that builds up to something that is going to be perceived as shockingly unexpected right but how do we make it so that everything from the very first scene is organic yeah and that was just that was it from the very start in the sense that i just tried to copy the you know basic narrative structure of every romantic comedy or just two characters in scene one can't stand each other and the audience is rooting for them to realize that they're perfect. Right. And that was it from, you know, the very beginning. And we always knew that that was, you know, the basic romantic comedy structure was what we were going for. Right. And you realize that the girlfriend sort of, know, I mean, that in retrospect, that she knows what's going to happen. Well, like, you know, in romantic comedies, the yeah. character, one of the characters always has some significant other who is clearly wrong for them. Yeah. You know, like the person that the audience knows they're not meant to be with. Right. So, you know, I wanted to just make a joke about that and put that character in there and make them, make both of the girls look kind of superficially similar. Yeah. Um, just to, you know, honor that little narrative device. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, this, I, I don't have an exact question, but the sort of use of sarcasm throughout the film and, and how that, I'm just curious about how you think that relates because, um, you know, the, the, um, I remember my mom always telling me, like I was always, I always loved sarcastic humor, and my mom always said, "Well, that's like the worst kind of humor because it's fake or phony or it's not real." Is it? Um, well, I don't know. It seems well. That's a good. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, bad. What, that's, that's that's bad news for me. Right? No, no, no. But I think actually, what your film does is is yeah, it does feel real. It feels like they're using sarcasm to, um, you know, to deal with things in a real way, which is sort of interesting that there's that tension going on. Thank you. That's not really. I mean, that's not really a question, but yeah, yeah. I, um, it's okay. But you can talk I, well, about I, it I anyway. Think, <laughs> I mean, I think the the tone of the characters' voices, you know, is something that Carlin and I talked about while we were writing it, and it does more or less, you know, represent both of our ideas about comedic interplay, and both of our go-to ways of humor are to lapse into the sort of laconic, sarcastic demeanor that the characters employ. And it was pretty easy for us to 
write that because it's very yeah, comes but, naturally. So it, I mean, it sort of works just as entertainment. So I mean, the the dialogue is entertaining. It's there's so many great lines, and it's a fun film to watch. But it it also like indicates that there's something going on with these characters that they're not dealing with. If, you know what I mean? I think so. I yeah. mean, also it's just that you know part of it, just the the smallest thing is just that they talk differently than the other people in the movie talk. Yeah. As, you know, they seem to be speaking their own language. They seem to kind of have a series of codes and ways of communicating that are unknown to the others who they encounter. Yeah. And that's part of their connection. Yeah. Um, and, and so how did you develop the dialogue? I mean, what was that like? Like, the way she uses the phrase, ooh la la, you know, like, five or, like yeah. know, a bunch of times in the film. Like, she just uses it. I mean, <laughs> Carlin just uses it. Yeah. She still uses it. She'd be using it if... If she were here, she's using it. Wherever she is right now, she's using it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's plenty more times it could have been not edited out of the movie. Yeah. She just lapses. It's just like a defense mechanism um, mm-hmm. for her to say that when she gets, you know, when she feels it's appropriate. So I think, you know, the characters do kind of talk like both of us speak. Um, just by virtue of how much time we spent writing and rehearsing our own lines. And was it hard, like you're sort of writing characters who the dialogue is very intelligent and, and you and I'm, I, I haven't met her, but I'm assuming are more intelligent in a way than the characters that they're playing, you're playing. I mean, that's interesting. Eh, like, maybe. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Cer- certainly in my case. Um, <laughs> uh, I was making sure no one's here who could uh, relate that anecdote. Um, uh, no, I mean, it's just. I, we both I mean the reason that I felt like I wanted to humiliate myself by playing a character in the movie was to kind of to do what you're saying which is to depict characters who you know it seems like there's some level of intelligence that they are lacking but not make it as though we are laughing at them mm-hmm. and I could never think of a way to have anyone else play the Colin character that it wouldn't seem like he was the joke yeah. Um, just for whatever reason, you know, if we had somebody who was, you know, five foot two playing that character, then it's a joke. If we had somebody who's, you know, like a tall, blonde, athletic-looking guy, then that's a joke that he acts the way that he does. Um, and it was just kind of hard to figure out a way to convey the amount of empathy that I felt for him and that Carlin felt for her character and to, you know, give them our own faces and our own voices and our own mannerisms and to have written all of our own dialogue was the way to, you know, give the audience enough information about how the creators of the film feel about these characters. Yeah, and to know that the creator of the film is the character, like, it just creates another interesting uh, feeling for the audience because there's not, it breaks down a kind of distance. I mean, you can't say that you're you're looking down at a character. You know, sometimes when people talk about Alexander Payne's films, he was here a few weeks ago, like people say, well, what is his attitude towards his characters? Is he sort of condescending them? Uh, so it makes it interesting, the, f- uh, the fact that you're playing the char- this character. Yeah, I mean, I just want, I mean, I assume that anyone who looks at the credits of this movie knows that I would have enough ego not to invite you to laugh at me. <laughs> um, so, you know, by putting myself in it, which is a thing, you know, inspired by some of my idols who inspired the movie. Just to put yourself in the movie like that is a way to let the audience know that you're in on the joke. You're not setting them up to laugh at this schmuck 
you're inviting them to laugh with you at yourself yeah. and at all of your own foibles and all of your own mannerisms. Yeah. And I, I thought that by doing that, I could just convey very quickly that, you know, this is a human being. He is me and he looks like me. So if you're laughing at him, I'm okay with that. Don't pity him, you know, yeah. because I, I, I'm not asking you to, I can, t- I can take all the abuse that the character takes right. and you can laugh at that. Yeah. So that was that was part of you know where the creation of it. You sort of set up the next question by mentioning idols. So like I couldn't help thinking of uh, Jerry Lewis, like the, a kind of uh, comedy. Is he a hero? Yes. What about? His, I mean, uh, just his. I mean, I mean just, I'm sure he's. I mean, you're not saying he's a hero because he's raised money for my stuff. Well, he's, he's a hero for that as well. Yeah. But that doesn't do anything for me. Um, he's a hero to me. I mean, he's just he. This the way he makes films is heroic. Yeah. People talk about him as a comedian but i think you know only recently have people started talking about him as a filmmaker and just the method of production for all of his films just became more interesting as he became less relevant Mm -hmm. and his attitude towards himself became more interesting as he started you know playing two and then three and then eight characters in a film just in a way that philosophically i really am fascinated by his reasoning, because you know, people say at Q and A's to me, "Why did you? Why? Why did you play this role yourself?" But for him, it's like, "Why did you play these nine roles yourself rather than <laughs> casting nine other people to do that?" And I think you know, you, but I, I, you would never, I would never have to ask that of him because I understand when I watch his movies exactly why I'm watching him play so many different roles, both in front of and behind the camera, yeah. and that type of sort of insecure, ego-driven filmmaking was very much a part of this. Yeah. Um, and part of that was just putting yourself out there, like he does, and just you know saying you know I no no net, just no security blanket. I'm just like out there, yeah. and I'm just totally going for it, which is you know what he is doing in every one of his movies, and I really admire that. Uh, I mean, one of the things that's great about his movies is the kind of freedom that they have, and you know what one thing I love about this this movie is that it's very beautifully structured. I mean, it really like does get to this point where. Um, really builds to this point in a really clear way. But there's also, like, a lot of freedom within the film uh, to sort of, you know... Like, the party scene, for example, is just great to sort of see how much different stuff is going on, um, and it has a kind of looseness. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, narratively, I mean, his movies are all over the place. And yeah. I, I've... When Anthology did a series of his late films a couple of years ago, I was told that two of the reels in Cracking Up were played out of order... But you couldn't, and nobody. I wasn't there for that, but nobody <laughs> couldn't tell. And that's, right. I mean, that's interesting to me on a whole different level. But that's not. I mean, that, that wasn't the influence from him here. Yeah. But it was just more, you know, like a more of like a journey. Yeah. Um, you know, because if I say he inspired this film, people are looking for that type of anything goes. Like, oh, and then this scene happens, and then. But that's not yeah. to me. That's not what I see in his films. It's interesting and. Just in terms of the structure, I took different lessons mm-hmm. than what his structure would have been. But in terms of his his ego and his like unrepressed id and his insecurities, those were all what I took hmm. for this movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, so how I, uh, how did you explore? I mean, I don't know. I, I'm just sort of curious how you developed this. Um, these themes, because I think the film, you know, while you're laughing, it's really dealing with questions of intimacy and um, and characters who are um, just, I mean, just having trouble with intimacy. So I'm just wondering, like, if like what you're thinking was in sort of developing the story, 
or was it not? Was I mean, it more it was, of an intuitive it all, thing? It was all just very personal issues from the time that, because I was writing this with Carlin during kind of the six or eight months when my first film was at festivals <clears throat> and just all the issues that you just described are all a big part of that year yeah. for me and the experiences that I had having, you know, just at some early point said, you know, I'm going to quit my job at the video store and make this movie and because this is what I went to school for and this is what I want to do and then being at festivals, all you know, all, everything you just discussed was on my mind constantly and I think that all kind of siphoned into the script for this yeah. and both of the characters, the JR and Colin, kind of speak to different sides of that scenario that I was struggling with yeah. and that Carlin very much responded to when I presented her with my feelings and why I wanted to make this story, um, you know, less explicitly than I was saying having gone to festivals, but she did understand a lot of, you know, this idea of turning this corner where people are making choices that are affecting the rest of their adulthood. And that moment as being this thing that, uh, wow, what is that? Is that someone's ring or is someone doing that because this is boring? Wait, is that a ring on a phone? That was neat. <laughs> I thought someone had one, like a iPhone application that did crickets. <laughs> but if you, um, if you do get like the womp womp trombone ready for right. any jokes that fall flat, <laughs> like that one. Um, <laughs> that's like a nightmare of a bad yeah, Q and A when you hear cricket sounds. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty wild. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't. So I just feel like you know the issues from that year of my life in terms of wondering where all these former associates of mine were, or wondering what I would be doing or how I would be feeling had I not just decided to make this first feature, yeah. were what became the emotional uh, backbone of this movie. Yeah. So and then and then the idea to have I mean basically your character is. Um, you know, sort of makes it easy for himself by just having a job that he sort of makes believe is really interesting, but it, like, clearly isn't. Um, and and she, she's the opposite, so they sort of have these opposite approaches, in a way. Right. You know, she... What we want, I mean, for us, it was, you know, they both had to be basically the different sides of the same exact perspective. Yeah. Because both Carlin and myself are obviously more... We relate more to her character, but we're very afraid that we are on the wrong path and should just be like my character. Yeah. And we wanted to just set up that dichotomy between the two characters and let them both speak exclusively to their own viewpoint yeah. rather than ever yielding a little bit. You know, the Colin character is totally one way and the JR character is totally the exact opposite. And combined, that kind of speaks to what we both felt could be real. Yeah. And had, and um, the, the sort of encounter with her professor ex-boyfriend where he's so cruel, I mean the cruelty of that, that scene, that whole sequence um, sort of really changes how, in a way, how the audience feels about her and it's really important to like setting up what happens. So could you talk about that? Um, well, I mean, I just, it's appealing to me to watch someone be berated like that. Uh, I think it's kind of, I mean, it's beautiful and it's fun if it's done right. Yeah. And it's fun to write that and to rehearse it. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, that, that scene occurs about 24, 25 minutes into the movie. On the one hand, 
you could say this character up to this point has been so obnoxious and 100% deserves this, which is fair. And she, up until that point, has been very loud and very boastful in a way that's overwhelmingly reprehensible and really needs that dressing down. And I think that the character starts off speaking on behalf of the audience who shortly into the movie decides that these characters are obnoxious and someone needs to just give them a piece of their mind. And then by the time the scene ends at about the 30 minute mark, a third of the way through the movie, hopefully you're on her side now. You know, you've seen that the character has, she depicts herself in the first third of the film as being very confident and very proud is in fact very weak and very broken and very sad. And I think that, I mean, I think that 30 minutes into a movie is an ideal time to start caring about the main character. Hmm. Some people disagree that that should happen in the first two or three minutes. But I like the idea of, I mean, no one's on her side at the beginning because she's, you know, both characters are very aggressive. And I like that that's the turning point, much as I think 30 minutes later at the party scene is the turning point for my character. And I just, you know, it was appealing to me to, you know, make people, make the characters earn the audience's trust and make them earn the audience's respect and interest yeah. rather than just depicting them as being pathetic losers. How is it the turning point for your characters? I mean, is that, that, that the character gains sympathy in a way? Well, that's or? when the abuse yeah. comes to him. Yeah. I mean, the abuse comes to her in that scene yeah. in a way that's very loud and very verbal. And then the abuse comes to my character in a sort of a physical, uh, cruel, mocking way, you know, at the party scene. And I think that's the point in the movie where, you know, as it enters its final act, it becomes clear that these characters are very much not what they present themselves as being at the beginning. Um, And are obviously moving in a direction towards one another instead of, you know, just forward. They're actually moving closer instead of just side by side. And I'll ask one more thing and then take questions from the audience, but just uh, wonder in your mind, like how you, and I think the film sort of explains this, but um, like how you think it's able to happen that, that last scene that they, have sex. I mean, that they like. What is it that that explains that? You know, it's interesting that they they it sort of occurs to them at the same moment. I mean, the kiss is like happens simultaneously. I mean, it's it's they decide to do it at the same moment. Yeah. I'm well. Um, I mean, I just I think it's it, it gets there because there's just part of it. I mean, for me and for the script, that was always going to happen from the first interaction and you know the scene where the motel clerk forces the characters to kiss i mean that's in a lot of romantic comedies where when the characters still hate each other they're forced to share a kiss and that's fine to me but you know having written the movie that was for me i was like well this is going to be important the fact that they're in this room with one bed is going to be important and you know what happens at the end which i really i don't know if i can elaborate on it but it's just, it is the natural progression, I think, yeah. for people that coming from the party and everything else have looked at one another in a way that they previously had not. Yeah. And at that moment are capable of loving each other in a way that is detached from decency or detached from you know, anything that seems right or wrong, just in a way that is like an honest expression of feelings for somebody that you have in the last two days come to look at is a very vulnerable and very sad person who needs to be shown some positive emotion. Yeah. And that is, you know, ultimately what they both see in one another, I think, by that point. 
yeah. which hopefully the audience has already seen in, you know, the handful of scenes. Yeah, and actually I think the very last shot of her is quite beautiful, the way that we see her cry without, it's not overdone. I mean, it's sort of a, it builds to that moment where there's a, like a, a genuine, you know, genuine emotion, but it's not over, it's understated in a way too. Yeah, well, we were losing light, so we, we, <laughs> that certainly couldn't overdo it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's take some questions, um, if anybody has, right over here. Yeah, so the last scene on the couch, how long, how long did you rehearse it and how many times did you film it? Because it, it was uninterrupted filming. We yeah. just, re I mean, we rehearsed everything kind of equally. We started writing in June of 2009. First draft of the script was finished in November 2009. And then from November until June of 2010 when we started shooting was just two or three times a week rehearsal you know, put a bookmark in and come back to that page the next time, just going through the script in perpetuity until we started shooting. So I couldn't put a number on it, but off and on for eight months. And we only filmed it once. Um, hmm. And I just felt that we couldn't do it better if we did it again. Um, so yeah, but the rehearsal process for the whole film was basically from November 1st until June 1st, which is a, which is a lot. A rehearsal, yeah. yeah. Okay, anything else? Back there. Uh, was it always the idea to shoot the film in black and white, or okay. was that a uh, financial decision? Okay, yeah, black and white. Was that was that always your concept for how it was going to look? Um, well, I mean, from the first, we only had one conversation about it, and it was the result of that conversation. Um, I was very insecure about what to do for filming because I had never performed in anything before and didn't want to waste film while I was learning how to act. And I had a conversation with Sean, a cinematographer, and I said, I'm nervous about this. I don't know if we should do 16 because my first film was on 16 and he loves it and I love it. And he just said, what do you want it to look like? How do you want it to feel? And I had just seen a photography exhibit of Robert Frank's The Americans. Mm -hmm. And I said, I kind of want it to look and feel like that. I want the look of those diners and those motels and th those highways and those, you know, sad, broken people. And he just said, it, well, if that's what you want it to look like, then we should shoot it in really grainy black and white and it will look mm -hmm. and feel just like that. And I said, you're right, we should do that. And I was, hmm. and I was like, I bet we can get that for a good deal. And I was right. And, um, and we did. We got the film for a great deal. So... That was, that was the extent of the conversation. It was a shorter conversation than the answer to that question. <laughs> uh, and, what, and what do you think, the, the, aside from creating that mood of this Robert Frank photographs, is there anything else you think the black and white does? Because it, it does also create some kind of aesthetic distance or does something else. It does something. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it, what I wanted it to do, which I think it does do, is honor the locations. Hmm. I, I wouldn't have felt comfortable. <clears throat> the diner, you know, is <clears throat> always the example I go to. But shooting a chrome diner in color would have a weird distancing effect because then it seems like it's a joke for some reason. It just doesn't look the way your mind wants that room to look. And the same goes for a hotel that has been unrenovated for 30 years. It just doesn't quite look the, the way that you immediately associate it with looking, whereas black and white, it does look exactly the right way. Yeah. And 
part of that is why you know there's no computers or cell phones in the movie hmm. because shooting those in black and white also looks wrong hmm. you know i mean not that that was ever part of it not that we ever like had to eliminate those from the yeah. from the idea but if you saw someone on a laptop on grainy black and white yeah. you would think that the look of the film was just kind of a, a joke or then you would just think oh the person who made this likes old black and white movies and just wants to make one whereas by using locations and limiting the amount of props or anything that the characters you know come into contact with it's less just like this is the look of the film and more like this is going to suggest to you a particular tone and style of place and atmosphere that is complete from the way the characters are dressing which is not particularly tied to any one period to where they are what they're doing or what they're not doing it's all like part of the same cohesive you know, lack of specificity <laughs> that was appealing to me. Just And it adds such a great drabness to the party because it's such a miserable party anyway. It is. And there's nothing in it that would like, you know, there's no television. Or <laughs> there's just nothing there that like seems familiar to what a room seems like to anyone who has been in one lately. Um, <laughs> I mean, not that yeah. we did anything to make it look like that, but right. someone actually lives in that house, yeah. which is shocking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anybody else over there? Uh, sort of. Can't really say anything more about them, but yeah, I wanted. I wanted to. It'll. Yes, I do. I do have plans. I have plans to have plans, and it will. Um, it's been playing at a lot of festivals. I mean, it's been. It's been doing. The, yeah. when, when was the premiere? When? When? In when April. It? Okay. This is my 29th Q and A. I think I may have mentioned that during the introduction. Yeah, I mean, I I want it to be seen on movie screens first and foremost, because I'm very attracted to that as someone who sees more films on a screen than at home. And I want it to exist on DVD as someone who collects <laughs> DVDs. And, you know. So yeah, I mean, I want it to continue to exist. But this is the end of this phase of it, of the festivals and Q&As and promotions. Um, but uh, if you want to punish someone by telling them to go see it, you will have a chance to do that next year. <laughs> Okay. Um, well, we, we're kind of stuck with the black and white, so we can't take that away. But I mean, as a comedy, I think it's something that benefits from being seen in a theater with an audience. And I hope that that is something that more people will someday uh, regret the decision to do. <laughs> Over here. I think you're meaning like sympathize with, right? Like your question? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you talked about like how they, I mean, how they had to be abused in order to gain sympathy. So why, why yeah, if you can talk about that a bit more and also why um, that happens with her, with Carlin first. Um, I mean, I just, you know, felt that the beginning of the movie being what it is, you have to, at some point, start feeling something for these characters if you're going to if the end of the film will 
have any type of emotional wallop. And I just really don't know how to create the story that starts with the pitiful character. I, just, I, I see lots of movies like that, and I just don't understand like, how that is the beginning. I don't know how to like, approach that, where like, the first scene is a character who's like, just down and out, and everything goes up from there, despite the fact that a lot of movies do that. I don't quite understand that. Um, whereas I thought it was more interesting and more true to my experiences with people to have them start off as incredibly unlikable and then slowly you know, worm their way into your good graces because I feel like that's more honest to the way my relationships with a lot of people are. There's very few people that I meet immediately and I'm like, wow, this person is pretty amazing. I really like them and I really want to spend time with them. At first it's like, yeah, I don't know, friend of a friend, I guess. I have no opinion on them. And then later it's like, wow, you know, they're actually pretty interesting. And I mean, she just, I mean, she's just the main character and I feel like her sympathies are slightly more important because she's much less pitiful at the beginning. I feel like my character is somewhat pitiful right away in the way that he is treated by people and the way that he acts. Whereas I feel like her character pretends to be less pitiful and I wanted to get that out of the way as soon as possible. And also to just kind of have like this pretend reason for them to go away. I like the idea of her going to move her stuff out which is ostensibly the narrative thrust of the movie, but that's over less than halfway through the film. And, you know, that is another thing that I like. Just the movie that starts over once the thing is over. The example I always cite is uh, On Dangerous Ground, a Nicholas Ray movie, which is, like, sort of about escaping from a crime, but then it's actually just about, like, living in this house once you have gotten away. And I like that as a structure, and, you know, this, in, the, in the sense that this movie is sort of about her and this guy who has broken up with her, but it's actually just about what happens with the person who she takes on this trip. So, yeah, her scene just comes first because she's a more important character. Hmm. And, uh, yeah. But it's, it's also part of what you're trying to do is just um, take somebody who just seems like they're an asshole and then you're trying to, like, get... show the other side of that or show there's something going on... Um, like for example, when your character makes a joke in the beginning about uh, black men and, and like this like racist joke, where you obviously can only look at that and say like what a like jerk that guy yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but like you're the tri- third, but third line in the movie. Yeah, so like, that's not setting up a lot of. No, it's not getting people on the character's side right away. Yeah, and the only people who are going to stick around to end up on that character's side are people who care about exploring something yeah people who i don't understand people who want in the first five minutes of the movie to care about the characters right away yeah. you know i just always say you know with, that's not true in any novel there's no novel the first chapter is you know you have to it takes you time to like get used to the characters and at first you have yeah. to form one impression and then if the movie is good it will change your mind on them yeah but the it, movie, yeah and it also like i think the way like that joke comes off is doesn't it makes you like say, well, what is it, like, why is he making that joke? Like, what's going on? Like, what is his insecurity? Or what's... Yeah. yeah. And hopefully later you say, oh, that's his yeah. insecurity. Yeah. Um, at this one screening, I didn't hear this, but a friend of mine was in the audience, and when my character gets tripped when he enters the party, <laughs> someone whispered, I think he's going to die. <laughs> um, and I figured if we could get someone feeling that way, then, like, the 
then you have changed your opinion on this character who you were introduced to making racist jokes while right. trying to force his girlfriend to take off her clothes. Right. Um, <laughs> and I was, I was happy with that. Uh, I wish I heard it myself. <laughs> okay. Or I wish I thought of that while we were writing. Okay, right down here. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering, I know a lot of film writers have identified a trend lately of um, young American independent filmmakers making movies on very limited budgets about this sort of subject matter. I hear the word mumblecore and you a lot to describe that. Um, I saw that Joe Swanberg was listening to your credits, and I was just wondering, do you identify as part of that movement, and, and why do you think audiences have responded so well lately? Oh, yeah. So do you think you're part of this movement that's, that's called on, Mumblecore? On this you, subject matter? Yeah. Uh, whew, where's those crickets? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't, I, Joe, just he watched a cut of the movie and gave really good advice on a re-edit for the scene with the professor, which was invaluable. And I appreciated that. And I thanked him. I thank him for that. Uh, I, I, I feel like one tendency that I want to use to answer your question with a no is to say that, you know, I, there's so much writing in this movie and that to me is atypical of what you're describing. Um, there's no, there's hardly any improvised dialogue in this, in the final cut of the movie. It's very, very close to what we wrote and they're just, that's just not a part of my working process. And that is a part of the working process of a lot of friends of mine or, you know, other people whose films I see at festivals. Uh, but that wasn't a part of this film at all. And I think that the similarities end with the script. I mean, the movie starts with the script. We had one that was incredibly long and had a ton of dialogue, all of which we recited. And most movies don't have that or they have an outline or an improvised outline. Um, and just starting from the very beginning, there was just a lot of writing, and I think that kind of set us apart in a way that uh, other people have seconded to me, both uh, in person mm-hmm. and by showing the movie. Were there, uh, you kind of alluded to kind of sort of cl- um, like cra- classic screwball films and classic Hollywood films. I wonder if there are, uh, among your idols, are writers or directors of, in classic Hollywood. Like, of course. Yeah. Like, I mean, uh, that relate to this film for you? Or, um, I feel like I mean I'm not, I'm just gonna try to think of titles. Yeah. I feel like I mean one of my favorite screwball movies is Ball of Fire. Mm. I'm trying to think of it as like a well over the summer when I was at a film festival there was a a, a Minnelli retrospective that then came to BAM yeah where I saw the long long trailer for the first time mm. which was just like as perfect of a screwbally quick dialogue you know journey movie as can be yeah. which I had not seen um. But I loved, and I was blown away by I'm trying to think if there's like another, hmm. like you know, trip type thing. But just I mean, anything about characters who hate each other and talk really quickly is funny to me. Yeah. And yeah, I really like Ball of Fire. And uh, uh-huh. I don't know what okay. else. What else do I really like? I don't know. Monkey <laughs> business is like a great uh, example of that. That's, that's also sure. <laughs> what, I mean, am I forgetting stuff that I really these are all great I mean, examples Friday, so these are of, all excellent okay a lot films. of Howard Hawks <laughs> yeah well there's like a meanness in his movies that I really love like it's just I mean like, like very specifically like a real dark streak of kind of like black black comedy to like 
reveal a tenderness underneath that I find very important and very interesting. Um, kind of unique to him. I'm not the first one to point that out, but um, I won't be the last either. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, just anything like that that just yeah. is fast and people just can't stand each other. I feel like most movies with Cary Grant, people can't stand him at the beginning for some reason. <laughs> what, what did I just see? I don't know. Hmm. So, anyway, hmm. okay. it's, too, it's too much on the spot. <laughs> um, it was pretty good, though, for, for on the spot. Yeah. Okay, anything else? Um, oh. Go ahead. A Philip Roth? I didn't, but I have before. I, I will again, if anyone wants to listen to that. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, just in terms of what you were talking about earlier after the Jerry Lewis conversation, just in terms of the actual narrative of the movie, um, in terms, you know, just the novels of Philip Roth were the narrative influence. If Jerry mm -hmm. Lewis was kind of the egotistical and the film production influence, then, you know, there's just something about the sexually driven neurotic comedy in Philip Roth's novels was the influence for everything else yeah. on this film and movies that, or novels that have comedy hidden behind things that most people can't see past is how I kind of look at his writing and I think that that was kind of what we try to do here was to make this movie that's very mean spirited and very angry but then ultimately has this you know other side to it which is that it's funny and slightly entertaining in order to get people to not suffer when they're watching it through or to it. take them along for the ride yeah, exactly. Poor guy's complaint like you you know you sort of it's like this wild which entertainment. is funny but people but are going to say that people you know and have been for 40 years that book is filthy and disgusting and shouldn't be read and other people say it's hilarious yeah. and i you know that to me is as it goes if people could say like oh that movie is gross and inappropriate and totally like should not be shown and things like that shouldn't be made and other people say i don't know what you mean it's hilarious it's full of jokes i could quote funny lines from it that's yeah. like the good influence i took from from philip roth and kind of put into this movie um yeah, which, which you know, was its own thing. Yeah. It was very important to me hmm. through reading his books and writing the script. Hmm. Uh, okay, take one more over here. Um, you talked about how at the end uh, they were able to express their sort of love for each other without regard to social norms or that kind of limitation. So do you feel like that was a positive development for them? Is this a pro-incest movie or is it a destabilizing force? Is she sad at the end? So is this a good thing that they did? That's a good question. I think things in the movie f go from bad to slightly less bad. I think both characters in a pr are in a pretty horrible place at the beginning of the movie and in like a marginally less terrible place at the end of the movie. Just marginal. I mean, just for realizing, and not because of that, but just because they realize things about themselves and I think they're both going to be able to affect some changes in their own lives, maybe. I mean, again, we never really talked about what happens next, but I think that it is a cathartic and eye-opening experience for both of them to realize, which at the beginning I don't think is apparent to either one of them, that in fact someone does care about you and somebody does like you. And 
from the from the beginning when neither one of the characters feels that way to the end when they know that there's one person who feels that way, I think is like an improvement of about that big in both of their lives, which will probably just both go back to being pretty rotten. But there are, if, if yeah. you believe in the people the way that I do, but, uh, but maybe not. I don't know. Maybe things will be better for both of them. I mean, the, tr- the interesting thing is that there's other things that are happening on the couch aside from the fact that they have sex. They, they, there's a way that they th- speak with real intimacy and they actually kind of, uh, I don't know, they sort of open up in a way that is, po- I mean... Which has not yet happened. Right. And that's, Which yeah. is positive. I mean, that part of it is positive. You know, I, think like, that's I don't think anybody's going to argue, I mean, yeah. say that's a good idea that they... I think that's what they... Fucked. Yeah. yeah, that's what they do. They open up, they, they, <laughs> that's not a good thing, probably. They open up and are honest in yeah. a way that is not previously part of their yeah. behavior. And that is good. Yeah. Maybe. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess that's maybe it. I wanna, well, I just want to thank my girlfriend, Anna, who's put up with a lot of all these Q&As this year. Like I said, this is my 29th. You've probably seen 15 of them. That's a lot. Imagine listening to this 15 times. And uh, it's been a really, I know that no one here was here for the whole year, but I just want to, you know, it's been really fun for me to do Q&As and talk to people. And uh, and probably know. people are happy to hear that Carlin's not your girlfriend. Yes, yeah. they are. Well, they, they, they should be. I am. Um, <laughs> I didn't mean it that way, but. But uh, yeah. no, it's been, uh, it's been, you know, nice getting to interact with people and present the film at places. And this is a place that means more to me than pretty much anywhere else that it's screened. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming. And thanks, Anna, for listening to all these Q&As. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.